internet. What in the matrix hell? My name is Matthew Kroll. And they call me the notorious P.I.G. My name is Shahir Dowd. Ball. My name is Izzy. (laughs) (laughs) And this is the only podcast about movies, specifically the film Space Jam, A New Legacy. Space Jam, A New Legacy, and we are thrilled to have Izzy from Be Kind Rewind, the fantastic YouTube channel, uh, joining us once again. Izzy, welcome back to the show. How are you? You know, what a time it's been. (laughs) (laughs) I've been having some apartment issues, which I have um, divulged more information about. Yeah. prior to recording of course of but course. um <laughs> but it's it's been semi-stressful but i am enjoying being vaccinated and i'm very happy to be here so thank you for having having me of course yes, I've, you uh, always have an internet home with us uh, yeah. to to escape your real world woes uh, if you will <laughs> well it's, it's just funny because the last time i'd spoken to you uh, we'd spoken to you you were upstate and uh i think you'd made it back safely but for this episode you decided to like keep the continue the tradition and head back upstate right exactly yeah <laughs> uh well we're glad you're keeping safe i wanted to say uh i have been um avidly subscribed to the youtube channel uh very excited there's a, a number of fantastic videos one of my favorite youtube video essays i think in a long time is yours about madonna and her cinematic references uh which was just a pure delight um i i i love What I love about this particular video essay is that it's not just a superficial look at uh, she did this, you know, which looks like this. It was Mm -hmm. more a historical context of where these where these references come from, where Marlena Dietrich, Marilyn Monroe, the AIDS crisis comes from and how it affects her work. So I um, I urge everybody who listens, if you haven't um, subscribed to BK Rewind at this point, you absolutely should do. Um, Can you tell because that was written uh, with another author who I believe is a sight and sound contributor. Is that correct? Or am I am I reading that right? She might be. Um, yeah. I'm a big fan of hers. Um, her name is Sydney Urbanek. Mm. I think I'm pronouncing that right. But um, yeah. she is a Canadian writer who specializes in um, like the visuals of pop culture. So she mm-hmm. writes a lot about music videos yeah. um, and music documentaries and things like that. Um, and she is just so incredible and one of the internet's foremost Madonna minds. Um, so <laughs> I had this idea um, a couple of months ago and pitched it to her. And um, it was just wonderful collaborating with her because, you know, she's such a great sounding board to sort of uh, ideate and like hypothesize things and figure out like, oh, well, where where hasn't Madonna said X, Y, Z? Like, what can we fill in here? Or what have other people said about this? Um, so, yeah, it was wonderful working with her. And um, yeah, I was I was very excited to do that essay as well. I think it was a is a new sort of path for the channel. And yeah, uh, people seem to enjoy it. So that's good. I, yeah, I absolutely love that video. I also, uh, did you manage to get, uh, I, I don't know if anyone on the show uh, or listens to the show is a Madonna fan, but the erotica book, which I know is like difficult to purchase now, did you manage to get a copy of it? I have a PDF of it. You have a PDF of it. You know what's yeah. funny? It still <laughs> counts. Just put it on put it on a laptop on a coffee table. You'll be fine. Sydney Sydney actually got like a packaged copy, like a new copy. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And she I, was kind of showing it to me. So it's really cool when you actually get your hands on it. It's like made of metal. It's very. Yeah. 
Oh yeah. yeah, I'm old enough to remember when it came out, and uh, and we actually owned a copy of it. Uh, nice. I don't know where that copy went. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what has happened to that copy. I, I know it was a scandalous item in our household, but sure. we were such uh, Madonna fans in the house that it was uh, it, w- it was not a question mark that we would not be purchasing that. Yeah, well, that's good. It's a good household. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, Matt, uh, how have you been, buddy? I haven't spoken to you in a little while as well. You know, I'm fine. <laughs> uh, it's been a week. I feel like I feel like the theme of this week is it's been a week. Right. Um, <laughs> a, a lot going on uh, over on the on the YouTube mines uh, and uh, sort of prepping for some other stuff. And you know those weeks. Uh, both both of you, where everything is laid out perfectly on Monday, <laughs> but then M- Monday afternoon happens, and then that whole thing just goes out the window, and you have to spend the rest of your week picking up the pieces of your once beautifully scheduled time, right? <laughs> That's uh, my life right now. Okay, um, totally relate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How about you, Shahir? What you what you been doing? Uh, not a hell of a lot. I am just here for the Space Jam. Uh, I am here to discuss the uh, LeBron James, Malcolm D. Lee directed masterpiece of 2021 that we have all been dying to talk about. Izzy, I this this was the strange thing because I'll be honest with you, Space Jam was not on our roster, and then I saw you tweeting about it. And there was just a, a, a moment in my head I said, I actually would love to talk about Looney Tunes and Space Jam and basketball and whatever comes up with you. Um, you went on a tweet storm about the Looney Tunes characters. I'm, I'm curious if you can recount what you were think, what you were feeling when you watched this movie. Right. Well, okay. So I feel like this is going to get into my review a little. So is sure. that okay? Yeah, yeah that's yeah. totally fine. Kick us off. <laughs> um, so... I think when news about the new Space Jam came out and it started sort of slowly leaking that it was just going to be this like blend smoothie of like (laughs) Warner Brothers characters, I felt very cynical because it's not the kind of entertainment that I necessarily love to consume. And, you know, I feel very protective of my classic (laughs) movies. And I was like, what is this going to do? What are people going to think about them? (laughs) So I sort of like went into this movie assuming that I was really not going to like it for that reason. Like I was going to get offended at some Casablanca reference or something. (laughs) Of which there are a couple. There are, yes. Um, But it actually wasn't the reason that I disliked it at all. And I was kind of (laughs) surprised by that. Um, but you because, did dislike it is what I'm getting. Is I what did I'm hearing. dislike it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the reason is I sort of like realized at that moment while I was watching it, how much I loved the original so much. Really? Um, and I was thinking a lot about why I enjoyed it. And I realized it was sort of just how charming the Looney Tunes are. Right. <laughs> that drew, draws me so much to the original. And, when I was watching this one, I sort of felt like the Looney Tunes were sort of the third priority of the movie. Like first you have the, the LeBron James and his son, Mm -hmm. then you have like a Warner brothers propaganda movie, (laughs) and then you have the Looney Tunes and they're just sort of like, uh, like secondary in their own movie. And I was very frustrated by that. I really wanted more from each of them. I wanted to see more inter Looney Tunes <laughs> dialogue and jokes and stuff like that. Um, and so I just left really frustrated 
because I wasn't getting like the nostalgia that I wanted. I was getting nostalgia that they were like trying to sell me about like the matrix and stuff like that. Sure. Now, let me ask you this because you, you, you speak of, of, of the Looney Tunes with a, a certain reverence. Was this your, even before space jam, the original, was that sort of your go-to childhood cartoon like cast? Um, like, I don't know. I mean, I, I wouldn't say that I like religiously watched the Looney Tunes or anything like that, but I just feel like I, I just feel like I know them. Do you know what I mean? Sure. Well, they're, they're ubiquitous <laughs> with animation at this point, yeah. especially even because, again, Looney Tunes. And I think, look, me and she are old as hell, but we're not as old to to be when when the Looney Tunes was still sort of being like original Looney Tunes cartoons were going. I mm -hmm. think our generation was more at least mine was Tiny Toons. And mm -hmm. Animaniacs, which again yeah. is sort of all in the same Warner verse, which I guess now is a thing. Um, and uh, so the Looney Tunes themselves were always sort of side characters in those things. And um, they were always kind of on at the odd, like reruns of the original Looney Tunes were always on at like the odd filler hours of children's yeah. television. So like I was introduced to them that way before the original Space Jam. Um, yeah. So yeah, it is weird how we do as a, I guess it's an American culture thing, or maybe it's even global at this point, we do feel like we know the Looney Tunes probably more than, like, this is a strange thing. Let's let's talk about brand mascots. I feel like I know Bugs Bunny better than I know Mickey Mouse. Right. Oh, that's interesting. As a character. Yeah, he has more of a personality. Than yeah, Mickey Mouse, Mickey Mouse is, is a little bit of a blank slate, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And he's also, Mickey Mouse is also pitched slightly younger than Bugs Bunny is. Sure. Well, and, and so let's even go a little bit down the roster. Like, if we look at the, even the supporting characters, I, I don't think beyond uh, being a little wacky, the other Disney characters, Goofy, uh, uh, Daffy, no, uh, Daffy's Looney, Donald, Donald, Donald yeah, excuse yeah. me. Like, I, I get who they, like, I get the one note thing, but it, maybe it's just this one note with the Looney Tunes, but it's ratcheted up, and that way it makes it feel more special. I don't know. They're <laughs> a little more slapstick. Yeah. 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 Um, which I don't know if that, if that's why it makes us, it makes me anyway, or you even said yourself, feel like we kind of know them, which was, which is why I think I even gravitated toward the original Space Jam. Because I wasn't a sports kid. I was an indoor kid. I don't know if you mm -hmm. can tell from my Super Nintendo hat. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I was not into basketball. And Space Jam got me into basketball for a little bit. Like, huh. it was mm -hmm. it was like a gateway to another world. Uh, and I, I have a fondness up for it. Um, so I was also, is he trepidatious about this particular movie when it came out? And before you tweeted about it, uh, again, I had I was not planning on watching it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, well, it's kind of funny that you say like it also got you into basketball because you know I was listing those priorities earlier, and I think basketball was is like the fourth the tier, last, right? <laughs> yeah. right? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Like uh, in the original one, you sort of have this other cast of NBA players who mm. like have a lot of jokes and their own little dynamic going on, and they have a plot line of their own. And in this one, it's like, again, like posed as a video game, but also the players kind of show up to become these villains and then that's it. We never hear yeah. from them again. They yeah. don't have a plot. It's just kind of they're there to be there. Um, and that sort of divorce 
from basketball culture that I felt <laughs> was like a little sad because I kind of yeah. I love that about the original, even if I'm not a big NBA fan. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. So, sure. What about you? I just real quick, because we, we've kind of talked about our, our our Looney Tunes origins or even the original Space Jam. What about you? Did the, did the original have any, uh, you know, a place in your young heart before it grew cold and icy? <laughs> uh, there is a lot of intersections in my life that lead to Space Jam. I think in the way that you guys were just describing your uh, relationship to Looney Tunes, uh, I've suddenly realized I'm old AF, which is that I watched uh, and I love watching uh, the original Looney Tunes cartoon. So like the Chuck Avery and T uh, Chuck Jones and Tix Avery um, set of uh, Looney Tunes. And when I taught film studies uh, in class, I always made a point to show Duckamuck. Uh, I mm. think Duck Amuck is one of the greatest uh, pieces of animation ever made. Uh, Daffy Duck is one of my favorite characters because he's such a low, uh, low totem character uh, who's always just trying to get ahead but can never quite succeed. Um, and I loved, um, I think there was something about, for me, particularly being interested in movie making, about the kind of in-joke quality of the Looney Tunes, which is that they were, they all, at points, they would break character and explain that they were actors working on Warner Brothers those cartoons and there was a sense of like this is a film and this is how it's made and we are day players in this film and bugs is the star and everyone else is around him and there was this sort of like sense of how movie making works and i think looney tunes for me channeled that a lot and i and like yeah to be fair um duckamuck was one of the first cartoons i showed my son um i you know and and he and what i am amazed by with duckamuck uh is how well that stands up today as uh, as just a singular piece of entertainment, even though it's entirely meta, it has this sort of meta quality about like how things are made and how animation is made. It works on so many levels where the jokes are still hilarious and the meta quality of it is still ingenious and it works so well. I also played basketball all the way through uh, high school and college, um, yeah. competitive basketball and um, and then so watching movies about basketball was a big part of like the ritual of being a basketball player was that we would find movies that had um, athletes or basketball players that we like. And, you know, I, I, we talked about this in our amateur episode with Ryan Koo uh, about um, uh, White Men Can't Jump, Above the Rim, um, Blue, Blue Chips, you know, like all these movies where um, a lot of them were athletes kind of coming together to make a basketball movie. So the acting was sort of what it was. But then a lot of there was this period, and I think it really did culminate around Ron Sheldon's um, Ron Shelton's uh, White Men Can't Jump of basketball being uh, a cinematic attraction. And so, uh, with that in mind, Michael Jordan. Um, it's funny, uh, Izzy. You know, thinking about Madonna uh, in looking at your videos, I think there are a few people that sort of traverse cultural iconography, uh, you know, globally that have become everlasting. And I, and, and Madonna is one of them. Michael Jackson is another one. And I think M Michael Jordan is another one, you know, like there is this sort of um, quality to what Michael Jordan represented, which goes beyond just being a basketball player. He's an icon in every sense of the word. Uh, before I even played basketball, he was important as, a, as, as sort of an athlete um, and as a, sort of a, a symbol, I guess, you know, as he came up in the uh, 80s and 90s of what, um, 
perseverance and hard work meant, you know, like what dedication to your craft actually meant, um, you know, to the point like me and my brother, my brother was not a basketball player, but uh, I'm 6'4", my brother is 6'6", six, six, and this was a real sore point for me because Michael Jordan is 6'6", six, six, and so this really <laughs> bugged me that my brother didn't play basketball, but was two inch. he was exactly the height, and it felt like being that height was important if you wanted to, to play basketball, uh, even though it, obviously uh, that's not the case. Um, that was what was keeping you back. It was those really two was inches. was holding me back, apart from incoordination and a lack of skills and right. dedication. Uh, so um, you, you said something, Shia, real quick, that I think hit, hit for me. Basically, that your two, Izzy and Shahir, your both of you are things uh, made a perfect synergy for me why I think I resonate with the Looney Tunes and why I feel like I know them. Right. It is because, like the Muppets, they are putting on a show. Right. Like there's a second layer where the Disney characters are not like there's think there's certain cartoons that they sort of do that in, but that's not like baked into their thing. Like the Looney Tunes are on the Warner Brothers lot. Yeah. And that means right. that they are day players in a show that they are doing. And I can relate to that, maybe even as a kid wanting to be a performer or work in film or talk about it or just engage with it as much as I can. So like I think that's it. I think that's the reason why. At least I, I feel but, like I know him. But I think, like you mentioned as well, is that um, uh, Mickey Mouse and the Disney, the, the Disney animated analogs of Looney Tunes, or whichever way you want to see it, did feel much safer and commodified in a way that was for sale, right? Whereas the Looney Tunes, in my mind, always felt like there was a little part of them that understood that they were for sale and would fight back against it. You know, like there was just this. They little... feel cheeky. Yeah, yeah. They, I always they would I nudge think about. You. Yeah, I think about like if either of you watch John Oliver, how oh, he yes. kind of makes fun of AT and T all the yeah. time and HBO. Yeah, yeah, and HBO. Um, that's how I sort of see the Looney Tunes. Like, yeah, like the scene where, um, I tweeted the video of Daffy in the original one, like has a Warner Brothers sticker on his butt and he kisses yeah. it and it's so like it's so tongue in cheek and it's just yeah. this like sense of humor that because we are so brand like self serious now yeah like this movie was all about Warner Brothers and has no sense of humor about Warner Brothers yes and yeah. that's so boring to me yep. that that is a, that is a real problem that I think we'll get into with Space Jam a new legacy um, but just to, just to circle it back to Space Jam, just a couple of things here. This movie was a behemoth. The original Space Jam with Michael Jordan, again, uh, 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 an intersection of so many major things all flushing out into one film. Uh, the first being Michael Jordan, uh, you know, who, a person who was notoriously selective about his branding and appearance um but when when it was done was so profitable uh i believe he had a cologne which uh was a, a huge bestseller and it was like the the image of it was you know i think i'm not sure if it was just the outline of his face or the uh the air jordan symbol but you know that symbol uh what as you know if you think about marketing was one of the most transcendent images that we all know and understand we still all know and understand the value of jordans um the second was the looney tunes themselves which i think izzy as you pointed out in this film felt like a third player in space jam kind of felt like a second player but a big enough one where uh the looney tunes at that point had this was their first big screen adventure um other than the sort of um 
um, compendium films that they had done, you know, like the, uh, um, was it Daffy's um, uh, Island? I can't remember what it was called, but it was like those, you know, where they would just take several shorts and sort of join them together. Um, and and then there was the music, the soundtrack. The soundtrack was a platinum-selling album uh, with the actual Space Jam track and now the more problematic uh, I Believe I Can Fly with R. Kelly. Um, but those three things made that film a behemoth. I believe it made $230 million at the box office and went on to a billion dollars worth of merchandising. And it did not have a direct sequel. Michael Jordan didn't sign on to do a sequel. Um, there's also some wonderful, uh, if you're interested in it, mythologies about the way in which Space Jam won uses the kind of um, somewhat nefarious stories about Michael Jordan's life in interesting ways. Um, so his uh, rumors about his gambling addiction and um, coupled with uh, the, the sort of untimely death of his father at the time and his shift to baseball are all kind of circulating that movie, which makes it um, an all, all the more interesting cultural artifact in terms of how it's repurposing um, who Michael Jordan, the person is to the public. Um, because that movie kind of really does present him as, you know, like uh, an all time good dad who's, you know, like out, you know, suburban dad driving a minivan kind of guy. Um, and, you know, but I will say for all of that, that movie did not stick with me at all. Like, I, despite loving basketball, Michael Jordan, Looney Tunes, it's not a movie I revisit or have thought about very much. Um, One of my best experiences exactly at, the, at the movie theater in the last, you know, five years was going to see Space Jam at the Alamo Draft House. Right. Like, because when they played that, you were with a group of people that were just in it, like in jerseys and shit. <laughs> mm -hmm. And like, that was like a magical, silly time. Especially, I mean, you could just imagine the beginning stuff that the Alamo cut together before Space Jam. Of like, it was the, just yeah. a, it was great. Um, and the other thing was, is that um, interestingly, around that period, just after um, Space Jam came out, was Joe Dante's uh, Looney Tunes back in action, which was uh, another attempt to re you know bring the Looney Tunes into a live action uh, feature comedy. Uh, it had Brendan Fraser as the star. There was a sort of a similar kind of uh, interaction between the real world and the Looney Tunes. You know, and this is all obviously as far as cinematic experiences go or in terms of liberal quality uh who framed roger rabbit is the you know the 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 high watermark for all of this mm -hmm. and everything else is as swum far below um but looney tunes back in action completely bombed despite you know joe dante being at the helm and believing that he had a better take on what the looney tunes were um you know this was a film that completely bombed and it essentially uh, uh stopped all um uh, live action Looney Tunes films for a while. There was a uh, rumored to be uh, a Jackie Chan spinoff, which was going to be called Spy Jam, a Tony Hawk uh, spinoff, which was going to be called Skate Jam. Uh, there, there was really a lot of plans for this, and there was a lot of money at stake here. A um, rock and roll version called <laughs> Pearl Tunes. Pearl Jam. Uh, <laughs> Jesus. Uh, yeah. So, oh. um, with all that said, I'm, I'm sorry. I felt like I was kind of just giving some historical context here because I think I think it's just fascinating what happened with these characters. And and like you kind of both alluded to as well, I feel like Disney has cornered the market on how to sell these in the most um, unified way. Whereas um, Looney Tunes and Warner Brothers has been a little bit more of a hodgepodge of what is what are these characters? What are the rules? What do they do? What do they not do? And how do they appear in films? Um, with all that said, Matt, can you tell us? Uh, if it's any surprise to the to the people listening, what Space Jam: A New Legacy is about? I would love to recount 
the glorious tale that the Internet Movie Database has bestowed upon us to summarize this film. A rogue artificial intelligence kidnaps the son of famed basketball player LeBron James, who then has to work with Bugs Bunny to win a basketball game. (laughs) Why does he have to play basketball? Think about it. (laughs) Don't think about it. Um, I will say this. I appreciate that the beginning of the IMDb description talks about uh, algae rhythm uh, (laughs) because... Holy macaroni. Uh, that was just such a silly, like, how do I put this? Don Cheadle chewing scenery, I will say, was the one shining moment for me <laughs> in this movie. Like, yeah. he just looked like he was having fun. And <laughs> that will go a long way. He was the only person that looked like they were having fun. <laughs> but uh, I, I think... I, I, it, it got me, it, it, it gave me a little bit of hope moving forward in it that was, you know, quickly dashed. Um, Izzy, you, you alluded to sort of your, you, you mentioned how uh, certain reasons were not the reason why you didn't like it, though you still didn't enjoy it. What are sort of your first thoughts behind it and where where were the first cracks seen? Um. Yeah, I think sort of, from the beginning (laughs) i mean okay so i just think the pacing of this was really slow and weird um i mean i went in uh sort of unaware that i wanted to see the looney tunes but it became immediately clear by like the half hour mark when we hadn't met any of them yet and uh there hadn't been like a single fun looney tunes joke i was just like dude why am i waiting this long for like a tweety joke do you know what i mean yeah um i i didn't really care about the villain spouting off his plans for 10 minutes like i just i wanted some gags i wanted some (laughs) pratfalls you know um i think the sort of like high school musical plot line that was set up from the very beginning just sort of left me uninterested. Um, and the fact that like the A story is basically the human based, it's not yeah. like in the cartoon world. So you sort of have to make an excuse to go to the cartoon world as opposed to getting sucked into it. Yeah. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, Which is what happened in Space Jam 1. Jordan gets sucked into the cartoon world because there's a basketball competition. Exactly. Where, whereas LeBron... This is like a very weird, convoluted, yeah. um, like workaround. Yeah, um, a branding-based workaround. <laughs> yeah, and I don't know. I mean, it just felt like when they start doing that tour of all of the different IPs that they mm. have, I was just like, oh my god, this is lasting forever. And Wonder Woman has more lines than like half of the Looney Tunes at this uh-huh. point, and it just felt so blatant and like yeah. s- cynical maybe i don't know i mean it just left me feeling like if you're gonna go there go there like just make the team superman yeah and batman and one like just do it if yeah. you have all the ip just do it and that's a fun take and a fun twist that like you can offer a sequel so i don't know there's a quality to this where you're sort of and i think i i hadn't really thought about it until you started talking was that why is it the Looney Tunes? Like, why does algae rhythm 
send them down to the like to the losers where the Looney Tunes are. Like it has literally nothing to do with their plot. It has nothing to do with anything. It just happens to be another piece of IP. Like the, he equally mm-hmm. could have sent them sent him to the Game of Thrones land. He equally could have sent him to the Matrix. There was yeah. no there was nothing. There's no compelling reason in the film for this to center around the Looney Tunes. Unless I mean, okay, I'm out. I don't think this is a good plot. I yeah. think this is what they were trying to do. Mm-hmm. I think the idea was he knew that like <laughs> he had broken the Looney Tunes up due to capitalism and trying to get them in other things, uh, playing to their vanities and splitting up the team. So he figured that LeBron would have the hardest time <laughs> getting a team but together. But that happens off screen prior to the movie, Which right? also, yeah. yes, which also doesn't make sense because if Algie Rhythm's goal is to have engagement, wouldn't he want a good close game? Like, isn't that the whole, re- like he wants LeBron's brand? The, the brands, I don't, understand brands <laughs> i, I w- yeah i think the other thing that really threw me off was how um i was just kind of confused by the audience because to right. me like i enjoyed space jam because i was like seven when i saw it <laughs> yeah. and like that's who it's made for and it's very obvious that it's for children mm-hmm. whereas this i was like i have no idea if this is for a 10 year old or a 35 year old, literally no clue. And if it's for everyone, it's for no one to me. Yeah. Um, I wrote in my notes, who the hell is this shit for? Like, I was like, what is this? Cause I don't necessarily think that kids know the Looney Tunes quite as well as we probably did, Mm -hmm. but they sure as hell aren't going to know Casablanca. They're not going to get half of the very distracting, like background characters either. Like, they're not going to probably know the matrix. Like the matrix was there because it's an ad because there's another matrix coming out. Mm-hmm. Like <laughs> it's just, it just confused me as to like what the jokes were and why the references were there. And I don't know. I mean, I, I, I wrote a list of every brand that I saw <laughs> and I, I can read them very quickly. Okay. Okay. Sure, and LeBron is the first one because LeBron is a brand. So yeah. LeBron, Warner Brothers, E3, Scoop, Batman, Game of Thrones, Harry Potter, The Matrix, Wizard of Oz, Superman, King Kong, Iron Giant, DC in general, Mad Max, Austin Powers, Rick and Morty, Wonder Woman, MC Hammer, Flintstones, Jetsons, Gremlins, Space Ghost, It, Back to the Future, Animaniacs, The Mask, The Nun from the freaking Nun movies, and uh, two different Catwomen and the original Aliens from Space Jam. Now, I will just be contentious here, which is that I think some people have pointed out that that Nun might be from ken russell's the devils the devils yeah oh, well maybe that's what i meant the nun i didn't know maybe that yeah, wasn't yeah. the movie called the nun it is from the it's a warner brothers owned horror which is, IP. Which is ironic because that movie has been long unreleased or or the actual distribution of that particular film is really interesting we've talked about it yeah yeah so yeah. so with all that said especially the weird like extras dressed as characters in the background of the game was so distracting that I didn't fully understand. Like, I didn't watch the game. Like, not that there right. was much to see, but I was like, why is why is someone dressed like Danny DeVito's penguin back there? <laughs> right, and the way that they shot it is so confusing because most of them are lit extremely well. Right, yeah. Um, they're very close and sometimes in focus. <laughs> and they're all, like, very actory actors. Like, they're yeah, all yeah. giving 200%. Yeah, I saw, they're giving just too much in the background. Yeah. The, the extras are Smith. all playing too big. Yeah, the yeah. the the B actor Agent Smith. 
yeah. was like the biggest like scene stealer for me of the entire movie. Whenever something good or bad would happen, his reactions, I was like, man, that uh, dude I also, loves uh, the I, Matrix. I, there's a part of me that just refuses to believe that the Droogs from A Clockwork Orange would be that excited about, about a basketball game. <laughs> um, I couldn't quite see it. I, 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 I think you guys are completely correct. This is not a good movie. 100% not a good movie. I also think expectations on this are slightly different, which is that it is, I'm, my expectations are not about a good movie necessarily. It's about how the IP is manufactured within this, because that feels like what this thing is about. But there was a second thing to this that occurred to me as I was watching it. And I was trying to articulate, I was trying to figure out how to articulate this in, in, uh, an interesting or in a way that made sense because it was something I felt and I'm not sure I'm articulating this in the right way. But I did see a tweet that mentioned this as well. And I, I haven't been able to track down where the tweet was, but um, the, the notion was this is a black film. And, and the, what they said was this was a blacker than black film. And if you recall, and, and like the, the thing that I thought about was, uh, I don't remember if you remember Chris Rock's film CB4, um, but there's a song in there where he goes, I'm black, y'all, I'm black and a black, the black, black, y'all. If anyone is a hip hop head, they might know that one. Um, I love that movie. But I started thinking about the racial identity of Looney Tunes. And I started mm-hmm. contemplating that against the racial identity of the Disney characters, um, of, of the Mickey Mouse characters. Now, both of these sets of characters are tinged with um, a heavily racially prejudiced past. Both yes. of these uh, sets of characters come from uh, racist periods, and they have many, many racist uh, tropes within them. But I thought about why Space Jam was such a success. And I, and I don't think this is entirely the full articulation of that idea. But, but I, I wondered about how when I think about Looney Tunes now and, their race, and, and what their racial identity is, despite the fact that this is not, they're not voiced by black, by black actors in a noticeable way, um, it, I do get the sense that these are artifacts of black culture now and have either been appropriated into black culture or are now fully within black culture. And the film kind of operates as a black film. Like this is a film that is um, uh, uh, produced by Ryan Coogler, directed by Malcolm D. Lee. Terrence Nance was originally um, slated to direct the film. Um, so these are people that, you know, like you would, that whose names came up in the sort of way that Disney used the, their blackness for uh, a movie like Black Panther. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I, and I started wondering, and I, and I, I started doing some research in terms of like the way in which icons become appropriated by certain cultures. And, you know, I, I think Izzy, you'll probably be familiar with this as the, you know, the way in which Judy Garland becomes a queer icon through the Wizard of Oz. And I started thinking about, uh, in the same way, Bugs Bunny in the early ni- late eighties and nineties became, uh, an icon in hip hop culture. Um, there was this uh, the, the, this T-shirt company called Lot Forty Nine who used uh, Bugs and and Marvin the Martian. And I think about you know again Spike Lee's use of um, Marvin the Martian in his commercials. The original film was born out of Michael Jordan um, and uh, the Looney Tunes in commercials together. And I, I just I wondered about that milieu that had kind of had sort of been created around this film and the way in which 
when I watch this now, what I think is really interesting and what I kind of like about it is this idea that this movie, whether advertent, you know, whether directly or inadvertently, leans into this idea that it that I am now where previously I had never ever considered what the racial what what race the the Looney Tunes were or what you know like what identify identification there was, am now thinking about them as black icons. And I don't know if that's correct, and I don't know if that's articulated in the right way, and I'm I'm sort of still kind of working through that. But I'm curious, you know, that's the thing I took away from this more than this. It is a bad movie. It, don't don't get me wrong about it. It is it's terrible. Um, although I will say, from a visual point of view, as a designer, there was something delightful in terms of like the level of creativity in terms of the execution. You know, like they, you know, like I I watch it and just awe at you know what can be achieved now. Um, like and what the Kronos you know, the, Wiley Coyote Roadrunner moment, I was like, oh shit! Like this, <laughs> I was actually impressed at that moment. I was yeah, like, this it, is it, really good. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and the way the game is kind of set up, and the actual like use of video game iconography as well, and I I, I actually kind of liked all of that. Um, mm-hmm. And then, but but that that sort of articulation of like where does this stand culturally, and what does this mean culturally, um, really stuck stuck out to me. I think that's. Um... I think that's an interesting premise if you put it in the context of like of Disney movies because mm. um so one of the criticisms of let's say like Princess and the Frog yes. and Soul is that like you don't ever really get to see like a black Disney princess or character play out an entire movie as a black person. Right. Get to, yes, they, they are they turned into something transform. else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And so if the Looney Tunes like if we take that um, for granted, I guess, then they sort of represent that within the larger scope of Warner Brothers because all of the other IPs that they present are majority white. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You have DC. I don't think they, I think they had Green Lantern for like a second. Yeah. You have Harry Potter, which like is notorious for having tons of those problems. Yep. <laughs> yes. In like every way. Um, Game of Thrones is kind of an, another one that you could talk about there. Like Warner Brothers has a lot of answering to do with a lot of their IP. So it's interesting to think of like Looney Tunes as that. The and the other thing too, though, and I will say this, I agree with the read and I find it very interesting uh, uh, of Looney Tunes sort of being adopted by black culture. But I will say, that this movie itself, the only culture that I see in it is capitalism and, <laughs> and branding. Like, yeah, yeah. like it, it, it says, for, in, in, the, in the weirdest, the, the weirdest thing is all of the things the movie's plot tells us through story are bad blatant trying to use algorithmic stuff to generate hype uh video games um you know different ways of uh, oh oh changing characters horrifically and against their will to different versions of their characters (laughs) as a punishment all of these things it presents as problems it also gleefully does Right, of course, yeah. Because it, it, as Izzy kind of pointed out, there's no self-awareness here. Yeah, and it's so 
that was the most off-putting thing for me and why I can never suture myself into this thing because I was just like overwhelmed with like do okay two two options do they not see this <laughs> and if they do how can they not care like well, well i don't understand I mean, it's that. funny it's funny because like the moot or the the warner 3000 thing that don Cheadle mm-hmm. describes and lebron says that's like the worst idea i've ever heard mm-hmm. but like what he describes is the movie yes yeah so yeah. we're either supposed to like think LeBron is kind of stupid for thinking that that's a bad idea or we're sensibly supposed to agree that this world that the villain has conjured is actually a very delightful and fun one. Yeah. <laughs> so like, I, I don't know what, what I'm supposed to think well, about that. The, the film that I thought about uh, in terms of the way that the IP is used in this is ready player one, which is that a, that's a film where, um, you know, like it, it is about the commodification of previous IP into a singular, uh, you know, into a singular idea. And the, the thing that uh, occurs there is that equally in Ready Player One and in Space Jam, um, A New Legacy, is that there is an indifference about with about what damage that does to the individual IP and whether the summation of all those IPs together creates a whole worth contributing to. Like, like suddenly seeing Game of Thrones as part of this universe and realizing it is one part property of like a larger thing and just throwing it together to say, hey, these are all the things we do. Isn't that cool? Also kind of devalues each of them individually and creates no sum greater than its parts. Mm-hmm. And that, that, uh, but I, I don't, I, there's a part of me that goes, I think the film is indifferent to to that sort of um, narrative care to do with those properties. Like, I don't believe that this is a film that cares very much about the Looney Tunes or any of those individual properties within it. No, they care and, about the memeable moments of it. They care yeah, about and, Trinity and, doing the that's... kick. They care about the war boys on the road. Like they don't, they don't care about like what the actual properties are or do, even if those properties themselves are special. But uh, oh, sorry, go ahead, Izzy. No, um, I mean, yeah, I agree. Like the first episode of Game of Thrones has incest in it. Yeah, <laughs> and they, yeah. they're like, "Here's a good like kids movie for that." Like, check it cool. out. Um, but but I it re- made me sort of think about um, like yes, Ready Player One, but also this movie called The Congress. Have you heard of this? Yes, yes, the no. um, um, where she's um, Robin digitized, Wright. right? Robin Wright. Yeah, so the premise yeah. of this movie yeah. is um, Robin Wright is kind of playing herself yeah. in a weird way, but um, basically she goes to the studio and they're like, we want to scan your body and we're going to digitize you because in the future, like you can just be rented out as an actor and like your digital self will be placed into all these movies and people can do whatever they want with that. Right. And she's like, this is kind of messed up but okay and she does it for you know personal reasons and so we sort of go into the future into this world where literally no one is themselves everybody lives in this fantasy world together where they can just play whatever character they want so all the characters are animated as like marlena dietrich as david bowie as gandhi like you can be whoever you are and then eventually you're pulled out of that world and you see that everything is just a mess and everybody is just like ugly and dead inside <laughs> and like broken down physically because we're all just like living in this fantasy and uh, escaping from ourselves. And like it is this 
sort of commentary on just like living not as yourself and like becoming just so depersonalized that you don't even care who you are because you want to be David Bowie or you want to be somebody else. Mm -hmm. And like, it's one of the most fucked up, like horrifying, (laughs) weird, profound movies I've ever seen. And I think it's the perfect double feature. with (laughs) Well, the other one, the other one that sort of comes to mind is, uh, uh, the Michael Keaton comedy with, uh, Michael Keaton and Andy McDowell multiplicity. And there's this thing that happens, which is that Michael Keaton becomes a cop, you know, figures out a way to clone himself. And then he keeps cloning himself until eventually you get that idea that a copy of a copy of a copy is so, uh, reductive that it has no, it has no internal quality of its own. Mm -hmm. And you know, I think, you know, like if we were to get basic academic on it, you know, we would think about uh, Boudriad and Simulacra and, simula- and Simulation and think about the idea that this film doesn't care about that because that is not the end goal. The, the end goal is not uh, what the Congress does, which has a commentary on the vapidness or, or the reduction of oneself, because that is a uh, the Congress, which I haven't seen, by the way, but I've read about, is a film that is interested in the in the in the in the value of art essentially to comment on life mm-hmm. uh and this is not uh and space jam and new legacy is is essentially you know kind of what maybe martin scorsese described as a roller coaster ride which is that it has no value other than the thrill of itself mm-hmm. um and it has no internal uh it has no internal meaning other than here's what we can do and the interesting the interesting congruence between those two films and ready player one which i have not seen the movie i've read the book i'm not a terrible fan um but at least and again this is not me defending ready player one but at least the crux of that story is about the love of the things they are referencing Mm. whereas this whereas space jam a new legacy doesn't even do that it just shows us a flashbook of things uh like you remember we own this remember we own this remember we own this remember austin powers and it's like (laughs) if you're 35 or older you do yeah yeah yeah. parents yeah yeah (laughs) well and i think izzy that question you asked about and i think both of you had asked is like who is this designed for and you know like i because i showed my son just some scenes from it just to kind of see if he would just enjoy the kind of like Hey, there's lots of loud, bright things <laughs> happening here. Sounded color, <laughs> and he was not interested. It, he really, w- I mean, he's got a Doc McStuffins thing going on right now that he's really into. So that really was like more of a priority for him. Uh, but but he was just not interested in seeing this world and and didn't care about anything. Even though he knows who Bugs Bunny is and he knows who Daffy Duck is and he thinks those characters are funny, he didn't really get. Um, even a sense of those with the characters. And I, and I thought about um, um, both, I think uh, Chuck Jones and Tex Avery used to have like these, these um, rule books for these characters. I believe you can, you can find the um, Wiley Coyote and Roadrunner uh, guidebooks uh, or the, the, basically the, a set of guiding principles, principles for these characters. Now, you know, there's an understanding that these, these are cartoons and they're irreverent and they can break that form, but there was a fundamental, like uh, the Wiley Coyote can never catch the Roadrunner. The Roadrunner can never be malicious towards the Wiley Coyote. Mm-hmm. The Wiley Coyote must never achieve his goal. You know, like that is, that is the, the sort of basic foundational principle of this. And um, you know, those other things like the um, Roadrunner can defy physics, but Wiley Coyote cannot. You know, and it was this sort of understanding of it. And there was something I, I couldn't quite put my finger on it, but I was like, this is like Bugs Bunny and his sort of 
morose self at the fact that his friends had left, uh, you know, like his world. I was like, I, I, I'm, I'm acutely aware that this, that, that, that movies can change these rules and do this. But I was like, this is not Bugs Bunny as I understand him. You know, this is not the Bugs Bunny of the Looney Tunes universe as I believe it has been set up to, to exist. I absolutely agree with that. I felt like so much of their personalities were neutered. Like, yeah. for example, um, I don't think Sylvester chases, chases Tweety Bird. Tweety in this. And I think they're all. friends in this, right? Like, yeah, which well, they... is like the entire thing. That's yeah. their relationship is that, and that's it. Yeah, and um, Wiley, and similarly, Wiley Coyote and Red Runner are are antagonists to each other, and right. you know, Road Runner is indifferent to Wiley Coyote well, in they, every they, way. They have one moment where they're sort of versus each other very briefly in this in this movie. I, but, I think the Chromio character. The, well, the, there's the that moment crunch. too. There's a second thing, but the yeah. but the, but the 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 neutering is very true across the board. Uh, um, uh, all of Bugs Bunny's nemesis, Elmer Fudd. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm blanking on on. I want to say Toucan Sam. That's not it. Uh, uh, Foghorn Leghorn. No Foghorn Leghorn, but also um, what big hairy guy? I forget. No his name. mustache, guns. Oh, uh, oh Yosemite uh, Sam. Yosemite, Yosemite Sam. Sam. Thank you. Uh, like all of these characters hunt actively Bugs Bunny, and yeah. there's right. never they a all moment kind of hate each other <laughs> where they yeah. interact. Like even even Daffy, who is supposed to be playing second fiddle and like jealous of bugs and like undermining bugs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. is just like, well, I'm the manager. And then that's it. Like, yeah. and then he is the manager. Yeah. <laughs> right. And then, but, so you contrast that to what you were saying. Like he's always kind of the underdog in yeah. the original one where they all like the starting lineup gets their little introductions and yeah. you hear their names and their and height. They forget and, Daffy. <laughs> and no one cheers for Daffy. Yeah. And it's so funny. And it's yeah. like a, the like the epitome of who he is that they're sort of like these rivals, and he's very clearly not up to par. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's interesting how they sort of also re like focused on different Looney Tunes characters this time right. around. Obviously, like there was a lot of news about not using Pepe Le Pew, which I think was a mistake. Which you, I, like, I, I've noticed you're upset about that. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, to me, it's it was like a very dumb, like reactionary thing, and I'm yeah. like, I wouldn't say it was like a cancel culture thing, but it was, it's so like it didn't seem relevant to me in a way that I found um, right. useful. And it's like if you're gonna cancel that, and then you're gonna include Bob um, the mouse who is just like <laughs> Speedy Gonzalez, oh, Speedy Gonzalez, yeah. yeah. yeah like rattling off all these like stereotypical phrases and like, that's okay. Like, I don't, that was weird. Yeah. The way they used the grandma character so much and like, yeah. no one cares about her. <laughs> yeah. No one yeah, cares she about owns Granny. Sylvester and Tweety, yeah. right? They, that, that's her, that's what she does. Yeah. Like she, <laughs> why? She, she comes home at the end of the cartoon and hits Sylvester with a, with a broom or a, a rolled up newspaper. And like, that's, I mean, there's that other stuff it. she's done, but that's, I mean, look, I'm I'm acutely aware that that movies should transform these characters, you know, like should have the the ability to transform what we know about these characters. But usually, those transformations begin at a point of understanding what the characters were before we transform them, so that we know that there is a sort of conscious effort to re re orientate these characters in any way. And I think that's what I'm missing here is that I don't get the sense that the the characters are what we understand them to be before they turn. Um, like Bugs's sacrifice to glitch himself out for the sake of his friends, while narratively kind of, I guess, makes sense within the confines of the story, feels very un-Bugs Bunny-like. 
in a way that like doesn't quite make sense to me. And it's not to say that this couldn't happen, but there's a sort of like, I guess the, you know, like, uh, uh, I've been watching, I think you should leave. And there's a sort of discussion in there about like cause a movie being a cosmic gumbo and like, which is, this is the dumbest line ever. But I, this, I was like watching this guy, man, this really is a cosmic gumbo. Um, but all of that said, I, there was a part of me that just kind of was excited at the idea that this meant that this reek again i i do think it's inadvertently but i think the entire space jam legacy at this point has pointed to this idea to me that that's that the looney tunes characters are appropriately appropriated um for black culture and i and i and i think maybe that's not universally true and but this but movie didn't against... do that if true like this movie if anything if that is true did a disservice to that well i don't i don't know about that because i think this is a film about black people being, you know, like I, I recall Gerard Milligan on our podcast kind of saying that line, why can't it just be a dude going to space? Like, why does it have to be about, you know, the struggles of being black? And yeah. like, why can't it just be a dude going to space? Why can't it just be LeBron James having to go back and get rescue his kid in the in the in the Warniverse? And I'm and not I, talking like, about the plot being the problem in that regard. I'm oh, saying, look, it's a terrible movie. No, Don't no, 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 no. I'm, I'm not. I'm, but not, I'm saying. No. The, it, it, your 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 uh, example or your 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 what you're positing, I also think is very true. I think it's a very interesting take on it. It still has nothing to do with this this Space Jam a new legacy, like no, because no. because well, it just doesn't. Because again, it's not even that it couldn't. It's that the corporatization that they focus on both both structurally and narratively of the film supersedes everything. No, I guess what I'm saying is, is again, using the Judy Garland example, although The Wizard of Oz is an excellent film, also is in this the, film. Way, the way in which a film can take on meaning um, outside of its narrative, outside of what we may think it means narratively. And I feel like that was what I got out of this film hmm. more than the actual narrative itself. I, I, uh, think, I think, for me, anything else got drowned out. Everything yeah. was corporate yeah, I IP. I think I'm sort of in that camp. Like right. I'm still, I'm, I'm so like overwhelmed by what it was trying to do that I have a hard time seeing it that way. But, um, but that being said, like I did read tweets from black writers who were like, it was amazing to just see like a black family right. living normally yeah. and like advocating for each other, which is great. Yeah. Well, and be a, a black film without having the sense of, uh, uh, you know, like what the way in which Hollywood reads oppression. that sort of character. Yeah, yeah. oppression yeah. in that character. And 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 again, it's sort of on that same vein, if you want to get sort of meta outside of the movie itself, but like the, the joy of it existing, it is good to see other people other than cis white folks in movies that are corporate cash grabs. Like right. it's all, it's all even like, you know, yes, if we're going to make the spectrum of films from the most meaningful, wonderful thing to the most baseline nonsense of just give me your money as quick as you can. If we want fairness in Hollywood, and I think we all do, then yeah, there's going to be a spectrum of people across all those films. So right. like in, in that case, then yes, but <laughs> this, oh, oh boy. 
Um, I want to bring up an email that we were sent to this week, which was actually about uh, Black Widow, but I think relates to this conversation in some way. Um, uh, Jacob emailed us in at onlymoviepodcast.gmail.com and had a few questions. And what I, by the way, Jacob, I love that you did this. It is so gratifying because he, he wrote a really long, beautiful email, very well written. But at the end of each uh, point, he wrote an executive summary for that for, for those points <laughs> as a one sentence executive summary. And I love that. So I, I at some point we will revisit this email. Uh, but in relation to Black Widow, uh, he asked the question, uh, well, I'll read it just a little bit. It continues to astound me how films that I think have very little to offer are being defended as works of great art, or at least films that are worth one's time to see. Um, and he goes on to describe how Black Widow was an incredibly lackluster film. But his executive summary is, I wonder if the attention that is being placed on interconnectedness in popular films is shifting the critical consensus away from other aspects of film. And if that matters, or if it's just a fad, or is just the natural pro progression of the medium of film. And I think what his question relates to there is, you know, I've talked about um, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe how I think I, I I often think that the 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 MCU is greater than the sum of its parts, and most of those parts are uninteresting movies to me. Um, and this question here is: This is a Space Jam: A New Legacy is an extreme example of what I would say is purely brand positioning. Like this is a film, you know, it, it's difficult to even call it a film other than a series of snapshots of, hey, this is a, you know, this is a thing we own. And, you know, like a film like The Congress, uh, which again, I haven't seen, but read, oddly have read a lot about, um, you know, points to sort of the harm of that and, and, the, and the challenge of where we will be or the value of art. Uh, once we become connected, you know, like once we are just purely um, living in an intellectual property world. Um, do you see, like, when you walk away from Space Jam, do you kind of see a sort of net harm to this? Or do you think there's an indifference? Because this is not, uh, you know, like Space Jam 1 itself was a movie that was based on a commercial for Nike and you know, Looney Tunes put together, like, does it matter that this particular film is that? But we've also mentioned that, you know, like Ready Player One and film by Steven Spielberg, one of the great uh, auteurs of blockbuster cinema is also doing that. And, you know, like, does that, does that matter to either of you? Izzy, you got, you got that one? You want... Sorry, that was a long <laughs> I mean, I, th I see it as more of like a symptom of a problem than mm. like, a cause or any significant um, step toward like a worsening, I right, guess. Right. It just, it seems like it's a pretty accurate descriptor of what blockbuster film is already and mm -hmm. what, you know, these major corporations taking over all of these properties and sort of hoarding IP is doing to popular culture um everything is starting to just feel ironically very like 1930s it's just like what where do you belong what what studio are you in right. and what does that mean for what theme park you're gonna show up in right right um and to me like that is really sad i mean i think like for example disney owning what was it a couple years ago like 80 percent of the top grossing films is just that's bad for films to yeah, me right um straight up and uh 
so something like this, where it's clear that they're basically just trying to follow that model is nice in the sense that hopefully it gives Disney competition, but Mm. bad in that you're just essentially replicating a thing that to me is kind of harmful to creativity. Yeah. (laughs) Um, because it sort of just plays on our worst nostalgic instincts. And, um, that's disappointing. If the MCU is a disease and (laughs) I don't think it is, but let's, for the sake of argument, say if the MCU is a disease, everything that Warner brothers has done with their sort of stuff for connected universes, including this recent space jam film is a flare up. (laughs) It is not, it is not the, like you said, Izzy, it's not like the cause. It's sort of just sort of a a symptom. It's here. It's, it's, it's because of the other thing they are trying this. Mm -hmm. Um, I've said before on this show that I think culturally Overall, for like the bleed in point of like being involved and knowing about it in your entire life, I think societally, a society might have room for one shared cinematic universe (laughs) at a time. I don't think, and we've seen other companies, Warner Brothers, trying to do it a ton with DC stuff. The dark universe from Universe, like it's not the interconnectivity that is the draw, I think, of uh, that draws people to something like the MCU. It's it's being in the know about a thing. Like it's it's the same thing at it's it's on a grander scale of like uh, must see TV, like Lost or or mm-hmm. like th- these shows that like everyone Game of Thrones to a point. Like it's when you can walk to a water cooler and be like, oh, did you see Black Widow? And then you have something in common with that. Per- you know, when we went to offices and there were water coolers, you get what I'm saying. Uh, so so with that in mind. If Warner Brothers is trying to do that, A, in their longer form stuff they're doing and they're not successful because people aren't really gravitating towards it in the same way. Because, again, I think we don't have the – like, there's only so much time people have to watch blockbuster film. And if they're going to go see a blockbuster movie and talk about it, they're probably going to do the one that makes sense with the last three ones that they saw. Like, it's just this weird, like, I understood that reference moments. Uh, Uh, I think it's also – we're kind of like – doing a little bit of a false equivalency because right. we're we're saying like the MCU is interconnected within itself but Space Jam what they did in this is more like if there was a movie that connected Marvel with Star Wars yeah right with something yeah like, sure. whatever else they own sure. so yeah. it's sort of like I mean do I see that coming like probably they probably <laughs> are going to find a way to do that yeah um that will feel like extremely too much to me because <laughs> yeah. those are just everywhere. But um, you know what yeah. this sort of makes me think about though is how how brilliant Who Framed Roger Rabbit was. <laughs> like it really does. It makes me think about how ingenious that was in terms of like creating new characters, riffing on old. And, and, you know, producing IP and still making and somehow wrapping it up in Chinatown, um, you know, like it, it, in the sort of neo-noir telling. It just kind of makes me think about that is, again, for all of us, that is the high watermark for what this could be. And I, nobody has done. Nobody, no, nobody has gone, you know, come anywhere close to, to, to what Who Framed Roger Rabbit was able to achieve. On that note, <laughs> the interesting thing about Space Jam, or one of them anyway, the interesting thing about Who Framed Roger Rabbit, heck, even like Cool World and the lesser sort of stuff, yeah. is the 
synergistic nature of hand-drawn animation and real-life actors. Right. That's the thing. I've seen a shit ton of CG characters with real-life actors, <laughs> so that's not special when they turn bugs and everybody again against their fucking will into nightmare versions of themselves, at least from their perspective, into these 3D renders. It takes away the magic of that and becomes just another... 3D thing. Like, there's nothing special about it anymore. In fact, I would argue I enjoyed the fully animated parts with LeBron and Toon World. Yeah. Like, far more than the end of this movie. Mm. I, like, I, I, I think there's a thing about, and I'm just coming from a production point of view, is that um, what's unfortunate is that a lot of this film feels like people talking to green screens that where they don't really know what the thing is that they're supposed to be reacting to. And LeBron, you know, who was in Trainwreck, the Amy Schumer, um, uh, Judd Apatow film. And, you know, he did demonstrate that he, you know, he had some under, you know, comedic timing and understood, you know, like how to be in front of a camera. Um, unfortunately, is in this film looking like he's looking off into the distance and not quite sure what he's supposed to be reacting to. And I think all the actors kind of like, as much as I love Don Cheadle, we're going to talk about another Don Cheadle film in a couple of weeks' time, which possibly is one of my favorite performances of the year and possibly one of my favorite films of the year. Um, you know, as much as I think I enjoy him chewing scenery on this, uh, I, you know, I feel like he's sort of still kind of, there's still a little quality to this where it's like, I don't think anyone knows what it is they were supposed to be in. Now, the production was... Uh, you know, Malcolm D. Lee kind of came on this at the very last second after Terrence Nance dropped out. And I think uh, I read somewhere today there was like a four day turnaround before they were starting to shoot oh, uh, when Malcolm Lee came in. And so it's like, you know, it's inevitable. But yeah, there's just this quality to it where, I get, you know, uh, and I hate to just, you know, bring it up in comparison to Who Framed Roger Rabbit, but just thinking about Bob Hoskins and Who Framed Roger Rabbit and what he had to react to and how he, you know, gauged his performance depending on who he was talking to in that film. Yeah, you know. I mean, uh, I can't believe they must have filmed like the Wonder Woman sequence was probably animated before that movie even came out. Yeah, yeah. You know like, what I mean? Yep. Like, so it has, it has no bearing on the movie. Like, it's like it's oddly, it's completely disconnected from everything we're seeing in terms of like, it doesn't matter that Lola Bunny. Right. did that trial and becomes uh, well, here's an Amazonian, no, right? Bugs, Bugs ruined Lola's <laughs> shot at that thing that she really wanted to drag her into his own nonsense again. <laughs> I mean, I think what's that's bringing up Lola is another interesting yeah. thing um, because um, when I think back on the original, the fact that they invented a Looney Tune yeah. for that movie character um, is really interesting to think about in contrast to this one where they don't invent a character at all, except for like algae rhythm, yeah. which doesn't really feel like the same thing to me. Mm -hmm. And instead it's more just, uh, you know, replicating things we already know about, which feels again, very true of modern pop culture is just like recycling instead of trying something new yeah. to riff yeah. on the past. Um, yeah. And, and the bad. new version doesn't, um, doesn't make commentary 
I, you know, I think that that's yeah. one thing in your Madonna video essay, to be honest with you, that was sort of really fascinating was that Madonna was using old iconography to make commentary of where she was right now. Um, mm -hmm. And the, in this film, I, I feel like, yeah, it's just nostalgia for nostalgia's sake. It is an internal sort of uh, refractiveness to it where it doesn't, it, it ends up being a hall of mirrors, which doesn't really matter. To to the to your earlier point about the, the lack of Pepe Le Pew, you know, this film still has Foghorn Leghorn, a kind of... Uh, 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 a remnant of the old Dixie South and uh, um, Speedy Gonzalez in it as well. And it does, it does feel, you know, like I, I too, um, I wonder about like how we're reacting to something like Pepe Le Pew um, in a sort of very sort of uh, overwrought reactionary way, as opposed to like looking at it for what it is. And, and, you know, I, I think there's legitimacy in sort of saying, yes, this is not an appropriate um uh, appropriate icon for children, but it, you know, like if this film is a full blown nostalgia trip anyway, just go there, you know, like just, just do the thing, um, right. but it feels safe. And you that's could not very easily feel like you could very easily neuter Pepe Le Pew the same way you neutered everyone else in this movie. And he'd just be another cartoon character at this point. If you're, if, <laughs> who knows, exactly. he might have been in there. Yeah. But that's what that's. And even in the original one, he makes the, the jokes that they make with him are that he's smelly. Right, right. And that, that's it. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, let uh, final thoughts. Space Jam: A New Legacy. I, I will just say, uh, it, I, I saw it for free, and I, I, yeah, I saw it for free. <laughs> Shahir, uh, I don't recommend this movie to anybody. However, I think it's just a fascinating cultural artifact. I, I think it really. Um, is uh, a fascinating thing to look at uh, purely as a cultural artifact in terms of everything we've talked about um, uh, on this episode in terms of nostalgia, in terms of racial identity, uh, in terms of um, a refraction of, of IP that folds in on itself. Um, I think it really, to, to Jacob's question who asked, I think this, is, this movie is a fascinating um, moment to look back on um, in 20 years time and just to see what, ha what happened from this point forward and what happened to lead us to this point. Um, when, when I, skate jam comes out, when they scan Tony Hawk's <laughs> body and they uh, put it in a la the, the Congress and we have to watch Looney Tune characters jam out <laughs> to hyperspace skating, which will be the official punk rock sport, but also super lucrative for corporations in 2040. I'm I'm glad that the Iron Giant didn't get involved and was just a spectator because mm -hmm. I was like I think they're in terms of like uh, betrayals of IP, uh, the Iron Giant popping up it feels that that that's one that's very close to my heart. Yeah. <laughs> you know it, what I mean? Yeah. Izzy, t take us home. Final thoughts: Space Jam, a new legacy. Ooh, um, pretty charmless <laughs> um, melange of. IPs that I agree will be interesting to think about 20 years from now. I hope if we all survive the climate disasters and um, YouTube is still a thing, someone makes a nice video essay about how um, it represents this point in time because it really does. And yeah. in a lot of interesting ways, but also in some bad ways. Um, and yeah, I also would not recommend it. <laughs> there we go. Well, this um, has been the only podcast about the film Space Jam, A New Legacy. 
Izzy, thank you so much for coming on and and having this discussion with us. I uh, I really appreciate it. I don't think I would have talked about this movie had you not brought it up. And there's a ton of interesting points we went over. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. I'm glad I ranted enough on Twitter that it merited uh, an invitation. <laughs> um, when when you are not crafting the finest of the internet content the YouTube's has to offer, where can folks find you? Or just there too. I'm on YouTube at Be Kind Rewind. I'm on Twitter at BK Rewind and Instagram at BK underscore Rewind. Excellent. Shahir, when you are not uh, jamming to the spaces between <laughs> IPs, uh, gleefully engaging with the finest of the intellectual properties, where can folks find you? You can find me channeling my inner Bart Simpson by saying IP freely at my website at www.shahirdad.com. That's S-H-A-H-I-R-D-A-U-D.com. Matt, when you are uh, bounding from uh, Warner Brothers property to Warner Brothers property, where can people find you? You can find me hanging out. Man, what property would I want to hang out in? You can find me hanging out with the gremlins. Yeah. Over at my website, <laughs> M-A-T-T-H-E-W-K-R-O-L.com, my life and works. Also, Skeletor, the number four, Pierrezio on Instagram, or Emperor MSK on Twitter. Also, please check out the good works we are doing over at Extra Credits. We just started our Vlad the Impaler series. It's brutal. So if you <laughs> like brutal history, there's that. Uh, we just did a great episode, too, um, on uh, the debate between what what genre wrestling video games fall into. Are they sports <laughs> games? Are they fighting games? Are they something in between? Uh, and we had our resident uh, artist, Nick DeWitt, who is a huge wrestling head. Just, it's dripping with Easter eggs that I still don't understand. <laughs> if that's part of your if that's part of your jam, please uh, go check that out. Um, next week, oh, uh, will next week be your movie, Shahir? The one you're psyched about? The other Don Cheadle vehicle? Or will it be the following week? Uh, oddly, there has been the people have spoken on the internet about a particular film that I start opened uh, as a quote for this particular movie as well, uh, that starts with uh, P and ends with Egg, uh, the new Nicolas Cage vehicle that is getting rave reviews and uh, might be a sort of smooth antidote to the last Nicolas Cage film we did, uh, Jiu Jitsu. Uh, Pig is getting great rave reviews and listeners are reaching out to us. Uh, uh, many. Uh, reaching out to us to review that uh we definitely have an uh, an exciting episode about a new steven soderbergh film that you may have seen on hbo max uh which we have a great guest lined up for um but uh i haven't decided yet i haven't decided what's next week and what's what's important i'll i'll uh, we'll i'll do it, it live I'll, I'll just have all the episodes lined up and i'll and i'll make a decision at uh 5 on a sunday also izzy if you get the chance never watch jujitsu <laughs> I, I knew it I was will on take your word for it. I, yeah. I knew it was on your list. And I just <laughs> want to warn you beforehand. Again, I apologize to everyone for Shahir. I apologize to you for having to watch it, and I apologize to everyone for having to listen to us talk about it for an hour. Um <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. Your ears are now bequeathed back to you, and you may go about your regularly scheduled day. We will talk to you next week. Bye everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.